I was actually surprised watching the movie that he didn't do more. <laughs> I kept expecting him to like start rubbing his hands every time he was around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's so cute when flies do that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of adorable. But instead, he just went for the twitchy, <laughs> like corrosive great, vomit, <laughs> gr- corrosive vomit. Great physicality from Goldblum. I know, movie. like he does so much with his physicality. Because when I first started watching the movie, I thought, "Wow, he's this is a really creepy guy. Like he's creepy. He moves fast." And then. As the movie went on and he sort of transformed into the fly, I was like, okay, this physicality is working really well. When Gregor Samsa woke one morning from troubled dreams, he found himself transformed right there in his bed into some sort of monstrous insect. He was lying on his back, which was hard like a carapace. And when he raised his head a little, he saw his curved brown belly segmented by rigid arches atop which the blanket, already slipping, was just barely managing to cling. His many legs pitifully thin compared to the rest of him, waved helplessly before his eyes. What in the world has happened to me, he thought. It was no dream. Welcome, y'all. This is the Projectionist Lending Library. I am Eric Klein here with my co-host, Nathaniel Booth. And we are here today talking about Franz Kafka's the metamorphosis, iconic, absurdist story. Nathaniel, what did you think about the metamorphosis? What did you think about this opening paragraph? This opening paragraph is an interesting one because I'm not sure, you know, this late in the development of civilization that there's many stories or opening lines that we just know by cultural osmosis. This sentence... One morning, uh, waking from troubled dreams, Gregor Zamsa found himself transformed into a horrible vermin or into an insect or into a cockroach, apparently, according to some people. This sentence, this, this image of a man waking up and discovering that he's an insect precedes actually reading the story. I knew about this sentence, and I'm not exaggerating here. As a child, I wow. knew as a, I don't know. I have no idea how I knew about it. I remember as a 12, 13 year old talking about this story. Oh, weird. Never having read it, but knowing that there was a story out there about a guy who gets turned into a bug. 
So even though this is uh, the first time I've read the metamorphosis all the way through, it's been a part of my mental furniture for most of my life. Right. And there's, there's not many stories you can say that about. And most of them are stuff like Star Wars, that sort of thing. And so going into the story, I kind of had this preparation already in place. It wasn't quite what I expected, actually. This is the first time I've read it all the way through. And it wasn't quite what I expected. It was a lot more human than I expected it to be. Mm -hmm. Well, let me say this. I expected Gregor to be a sort of pitiful character. What I did not expect is to find his family as understandable as I actually found them. And part of this is because I was also pre-gamed by having watched Christopher Plummer's performance as Nabokov for this uh, 1980s uh, short film where he gives a lecture. He gives the lecture on the metamorphosis. We'll link that in the show notes. And so I kind of had Nabokov's reading of the metamorphosis in mind before I actually read the metamorphosis. And I was surprised to find that I don't think most of his family is really that awful. <laughs> I think that I understand them a lot. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's one of the things that it does really well. I, I agree. Like mm -hmm. what it does with his family. I mean, there are definitely moments especially like towards the end of chapter one, like when his father hits him with a cane and stuff. Right. Uh, where you got to imagine. Yourself. Do they know it's Gregor? Like, yes, they kind of do because they could hear him when he first was transforming. Like they heard mm -hmm. his sort of, but at the same time, like, I mean, I always do like this sort of thought experiment when I read this. If you open up the door to a room where you thought your brother or child or something was, and he was no longer there. And it was just this mm -hmm. giant fucking cockroach. It, it, mm -hmm. it would not be irrational to think that that thing ate your loved one. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But like, obviously they do know that it is at least in the beginning since that it's Gregor, but that falls away as it goes on. But also his identity as Gregor falls away as it goes on. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to just ask about, because we opened with this very famous paragraph, mm -hmm. when do you think Gregor transformed into the monstrous vermin insect? It doesn't tell us, obviously. I'm just asking, yeah. like, when, when, when do you think that happens? When he became a thoroughly alienated member of the proletariat and entered into the capitalist workforce. <laughs> yes, professor. Um, <laughs> but I mean, quite literally, yeah, between yeah. when he went to bed and when he woke up as the insect, when did he turn into it? I mean, traditionally, it would be the stroke of midnight, right? That's Midnight is when we transform. It's when Cinderella turns back into a pumpkin and it's the witching hour. Well, I mean, the witching hour is technically a little bit later, but you get my point. So what you're saying is you don't think it was right when he woke up. Here's um, why I ask that. He woke one morning from troubled dreams. If we think that he transformed at any point earlier, we are, I would say, asserting that insects do in fact dream. And I don't disagree with that assertion, but mm -hmm. I would bet that a lot of people would 
that, you know, insects are treated as non-thinking things. But if he woke from troubled dreams and he was an insect before that, that would suggest that he had them as an insect. And then I think it's interesting that that's why I read to the second sentence in the next paragraph. It was no dream Mm -hmm. that when he wakes up as an insect, he is able to recognize dreaming and non-dreaming. So, so I guess like what what I'm suggesting, suggesting well, I guess what I'm suggesting, sorry, (laughs) in the very like beginning of this, it is already inserting the question of humanness, which is at the center of the story, right? Like if it opens up with, is he dreaming? If he's dreaming and he's an insect, how could he really be dreaming? Because insects can't dream with the emphatic nature of talking about dreaming and it was no dream i feel like it's only precipitating the central tension of the story of who the fuck gets to be human and why is something like consciousness associated only with human and not with say a bug yeah you know you're, you're putting me in mind of zhuangzi uh the the taoist philosopher who... i'm not familiar okay so Zhuangzi was the uh, Taoist philosopher. He compiled or wrote a collection of anecdotes and fables called the Zhuangzi. It's one of the two fa- foundational, one of the two foundational texts of of Taoism. The other is, of course, the the Tao Te Ching. Right. And so Zhuangzi one day falls asleep and dreams that he's a butterfly, and he wakes up and he poses this question. He said, was he a man who dreamed of being a butterfly or was the butterfly now dreaming of being a man? It's a very famous uh, paradox there. And it gets to exactly that question that you're outlining, this question of identity, this question of who gets to think, who -hmm. gets to count, who gets to dream. I don't know if you're familiar with this essay that came out in 1974. What is it like to be a bat Mm. by Thomas Nagel? I think it's Nagel. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very famous kind of um, essay of like, we can't know. And and, and it might be a disappointing conclusion. It's just like, we fundamentally cannot know. But Mm -hmm. as such that we cannot know, we cannot assert that they do not have consciousness, that they do not have these things because we cannot know. And he's talking about a bat, but I I think Mm -hmm. that it is applicable. You're right. They're mammals. We can recognize like that sort of experience. But one of the things with bats is like the way that they sense the world is like just completely different from us but we can like sort of really cause us to reflect on well fuck like what is it to be human or what is human consciousness Mm -hmm. which is in fact at the center of kafka we want to talk about ant colonies who is gregor samsa but like you know just like a worker ant. yeah okay well let's dive into the actual story talk about what happens in it and what we notice when we come back and when we follow i don't think we actually identified we're going to be talking about cronenberg's the fly yeah this is kind of a different episode than what we've been doing uh on a couple of levels and we should probably flag that for people right now uh first of all we're doing a story that was not originally written in english and second of all we're 
not doing a direct adaptation. We're doing something based on, from what I can tell, a theory of mystic resonance between <laughs> between the two <laughs> because i and we'll get to this when we get to the fly i finished uh i finished the metamorphosis and i sat down and i watched the fly and i don't see them as being at all similar uh and so i'm gonna be interested in hearing you unpack why you want to connect them because there are two ways in which I think that they're fundamentally different sorts of stories and they're interested in different things. Uh, this episode will be going out in October, so we can consider this our Halloween episode. It's our spooky episode. Our spooky episode. Yeah. Spooky with body horror. Like that's basically what they share. This is one of the fundamental differences between them. I don't think the metamorphosis is body horror. Well, we will talk about that <laughs> and more <laughs> when we return. Hey, welcome back, y'all. Uh, this is the Projectionist Lending Library, and we are continuing our conversation about Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis, and later talking about uh, David Cronenberg's film The Fly. So we 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 opened up talking about this very famous opening paragraph, but uh, which people are probably familiar with, but what people might not be familiar with is basically the rest of this story. So like what happens with the rest of it, Nathaniel? Okay. So it begins like he, he wakes up, he realizes he's been transformed into some kind of a monstrous verminous insect. And at once, and it says it was no dream, but the whole thing takes on kind of the contours of a nightmare. It's almost right. like sleep paralysis in a way. He, he wakes up, he sees his numerous legs squirming in front of him. He is trying to get up, but he can't get up. He, he can kind of wiggle around. And the whole time on two sides, or is it three sides of his room? Because his room has like multiple doors leading into it. His family is banging on the door mm -hmm. asking why he hasn't gotten up yet because he's mm -hmm. late for work. Well, he did. Um, he woke up like just to the sleep paralysis. He like woke up. He's like, uh, this is weird. I'm going back to sleep. Yeah. Yeah, and that's but why he can't he's late sleep for work because he can't roll over. Right, and so there's a an extended scene in which he tries to get out of bed. He wiggles one way, he wiggles another. He tries to get his head off the bed. It's very funny, and mm -hmm. it's excruciating. This is a connection I'm going to make later, but it's very much like a David Lynch sequence where a guy is sweeping the floor and you just sit there watching him sweeping the floor for five minutes. That's what's going on here. It's in real time. It's minute upon minute of Gregor Samsa trying to get out of bed and failing. Well, but part of the humor, too, is the story is what third person limited. 
what adds to the humor of it is the whole time man, I got to get to work. Like, what are yeah, they going to exactly. think about this at work? Like, he's not, he's not even thinking about like, I am a I'm gigantic a bug. bug. <laughs> like, that's not even his like first, second or third thought. His first is I'm late for work. His second, I need to get dressed. His third, like, what's the next train I can catch? But like, holy shit, his boss comes his to their boss apartment. Shows up. Y'all, can you imagine, you no call, no show. And your boss just shows up at your home where you live with your parents. And then he's just like, hey, mom and dad, your son isn't coming to work. And they're like, we know. And then they're all banging together. Holy shit. Yeah. I know you want to talk about absurdism and you're much more familiar. But one of my understandings about a lot of stuff, maybe not absurdism in general, but what we call maybe Kafkaesque is that a lot of the time it's a heightening of something that we recognize. It is nightmarish, and I think nightmarish is precisely, even though this is no dream, precisely what's going on here. It's nightmarish to see the, the boss show up, but it's not really that different from the way that employers treat their employees even today, let alone in 1915 when this story was first published. But one of the other things that I think links this Marxist socialist critiquing like capitalist structure and the way that it dehumanizes people, because this story is obviously fundamentally about losing one's humanity. His thinking isn't like, shit, I, I can't go to work. His thinking is, I am going to disappoint my family in front mm -hmm. of my boss. There's there's this one line where he says, uh, just after the bosses showed up, uh, he says, what a fate to be condemned to work for a firm where the smallest omission at once gave rise to the gravest suspicion. Yes. One you know, of the things very much what's going on here. One of the things that he's so horrified by is because he's been so loyal to the firm that they yeah. would even suspect him of anything at all. Another thing too, to just add to that whole like alienation of labor, when his boss is at their apartment, Gregor's father is trying to distract him, right? Like, oh no, yeah. he he he's a good boy. Like he does this and this and this. And one of the things that he introduced like, or like, look mm -hmm. at how good he, he says, he carved a little picture frame, for example, did it in two or three evenings with his fret saw. You'll be amazed how pretty it is. That is an investment in one's labor, right? Like that it's emphasizing the alienation of labor that he has with like the job that he has, that he needs to make money yeah. to pay off his family's debts versus like an actual meaningful labor that he can do. Yes. And of yeah. course, then that's only emphasized more with what is in these frames in his bedroom is the woman in the, the, the fur. furs. Yeah, exactly. And obviously that is the symbol of desire to the outside world and stuff like that right. so uh, yeah i mean it really emphasizes this alienation of labor that continues until they basically force open the door right mm -hmm. and and he's in well he for he forces open the door he opens it with his jaws he, he crawls through the door it's not terribly easy for me to picture because of the way that Kafka describes it, at least in the translation I have, but basically he gets the, the key in his jaws and he opens the door. He injures his mouth while he's doing this because this like dark fluid starts pouring out of it. He gets one half of the door open because it's a double door and he's standing there on his, on his two hind 
legs. So he's got a multitude of legs. He's got like six legs and he's standing there on his two hind legs and he squeezes himself through and his boss sees him. And in one of many scenes of people fleeing, he runs out. And this is when Gregor falls down and discovers himself on his six feet for the first time. And it's also the first time he feels good that day <laughs> because he's in the natural position for a, an insect. And he tries to go scampering after his boss. It's a very funny scene. He tries well, to go scampering after his boss to get his boss to talk. And he's like saying things, but you can't understand him. Like no one can understand him because his voice has changed in the process. As you said, this is a very funny scene. It's also <laughs> like, and that's what I love so much about this story. Like, this is one of my favorite stories ever. Mm. It's so fucking sad too. When they open it up, he's scared and hiding. Like, I know mm. they're going to hate me. Like the whole thing. Yeah. Like, it's so sad how scared he is mm. the entire time from the beginning until the very end of the story. He is just scared. And then to emphasize the hilarity of him chasing after his boss, the reader sees this, like, this long <laughs> monologue Mm -hmm. of him like trying to talk to his boss but we but we know that it's just clicking and we can see this almost slapstick thing of yeah. this giant bug chasing this guy just <laughs> clicking at him but him yeah. saying like please forgive me i'll come to work tomorrow i it, i i still find it so i i find this whole thing tragic and, and especially okay so the boss kind of exit does he leave yeah, he like runs downstairs. Uh, this is one of many times people go downstairs in this uh, right. story. So he retreats downstairs. And then Gregor's father drives him back into his room. Specifically with um, violence, like because his, his, his violence, father yeah. has a cane, right? Mm -hmm. um, and he uses cane to like hit Gregor. Mm -hmm. Um, and drive him back into the room, which injures yeah. Gregor and he, like that affects him. I think the second chapter is, I guess, I, I, I guess I was going to say the most boring chapter, and I don't mean it in terms of plot. I guess plot, like not a lot happens throughout it, but the first chapter, like I, I think, is the most humorous, right? Mm -hmm. And the third chapter, the last chapter, is certainly the most tragic. Like it's mm -hmm. fucking heartbreaking, and we'll we'll talk about that when we get there. And the mm -hmm. second chapter is this perfect blend of the two, but in so doing, it doesn't it, it doesn't feel as powerful as the first or third chapter. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it's just like a sort of transition between those things. And it's a transition that we see Gregor losing his humanity and his family losing, seeing him as a part of their family. Yeah. It's a very important chapter, but it is the one that kind of takes the most, it doesn't have the shock of the first chapter where you're like, Oh wow, this dude's a bug. And it doesn't have the pathos of the last chapter. It's kind of, getting you there but it does pay a lot of attention to because i said before the break that i don't actually think of this 
story is body horror. But if you wanted to make a case that it is, this would be one of the sections that you look at because this is the section that focuses the most on the implications of Gregor's physical transformation. Well, this uh, we see him crawling around the walls and ceiling. Yeah, uh, it it begins with with Kafka paying a lot of attention to what Gregor can eat now. Uh, his sister tries to feed him sweetened milk with little pieces of bread, and this is something that a human would presumably like. Well, you've uh, been in Tuscaloosa, like if there's a tornado warning you get yeah. milk and you get milk and bread you, get, you know you get milk you and bread milk yeah. sandwiches you know yeah exactly exactly so this is something that you would like but he starts eating it and he realizes that the milk doesn't taste nice right and so then his sister brings in all like an assortment of food for him mm-hmm. to choose from some of and, it's like rotten and garbage. Some of it's like fresh and like yeah, fresh and baked bread with butter. And he likes the garbage. Yeah, he likes yep. the garbage because his body's changed, his mouth has changed, his mm-hmm. senses have changed. And so part of it was a, a cheese that he had specifically said was bad, like three days yeah. before or something like that. Yeah. Right. So Kafka pays a lot of attention to his diet, pays a lot of attention to his sleeping habits or lack of sleeping habits, pays a lot of attention to him going to the window and looking out the window. If in the first chapter, the sort of anti-capitalist rhetoric is very much bound up in one body's use value, in section two, it focuses on capital itself. So Gregor had to go to work all the time because his family was in debt and his father was in debt because of some business failure of some sort. That's not ever, I don't think clearly articulated, but something yeah, no, it's not. But we learned in the second chapter that his father did have a small nest egg. We don't know why his father had a nest egg, presumably because in case anything happened, even though he never said anything to Gregor while Gregor was the sole monetary contributor to the family we don't know why his father never said this why he kept this money in a safe but what we also learn in this Mm -hmm. we also learn about gregor's little nest egg that he was putting aside and what was Mm -hmm. his nest egg for he was wanting to send his sister to music school yes because she's a violinist gregor is bug or not gregor is trapped in this sort of capitalist system in which he has to just like be a busy bee to like Mm -hmm. make money and with that money he still wants to do something very human with it Mm -hmm. which is pay for his sister to go to art school basically yeah right yeah i just think it emphasizes the way in which gregor despite subjecting himself to this system tries to use it for something outside of it it's not like oh i'm going to use this to make more money or contribute to this like i want i i want my sister to go to the conservatory because she's really good and it would make her happy and he decided all of this well before he turned into a bug y'all just yes clarify yeah this takes us to sort of a central problem in the story for me in terms Mm -hmm. of interpreting so 
Gregor's father had some money set aside. Mm-hmm. And Kafka says, uh, giving us Gregor's thoughts about this. True, he could really have paid off some more of his father's debts to the chief with this extra money, mm-hmm. and so brought much nearer the day on which he could quit his job. But doubtless, it was better the way his father had arranged it. Because Gregor is a sweet soul who doesn't think bad of anybody. One of the things that is troubling about this story, though, is the family. The father, before Gregor transforms, is seemingly on his way out, right? <laughs> he's, he's practically an invalid. He can, he's he like, can barely I can't, walk. I can't stand up. I just... I can only like make arm signals from my recliner. Yeah. Like when they go walking, he's the slowest walker and he's always having to stop every time he wants to say anything. After Gregor transforms, all three members of the family have to get jobs because Mm -hmm. Gregor has been supporting them this whole time. Right. And the next time we see the father, which is another time that he's attacking Gregor, he's like very alive he's he's looking good we've said before that we find the family maybe a lot more sympathetic than other readers do but is there a sense in which the family i'm thinking about the discourse about the the movie parasite uh, who who's the real parasites the rich people or the poor people in this one it's like who's the parasite here it's not just abstract capital his family's living off of him Right. And sucking him dry through this whole story. <laughs> that he is the supplier producer for them. And he does it without any gratitude from any of them. Right. Like it's just expected. None of them say thank you ever. Like, and he remarks on this, but he do- it doesn't bother him because he's just like, oh, this is my duty. Like as yeah. the son of the family, Gregor would give whatever, regardless of how it was appreciated and what it turns into right is like they slowly and more and more won't give him anything because he doesn't contribute because he's useless in fact not only that he is a drain on them Mm -hmm. when that's what they were to them the entire time nabokov again gregor's family are his parasites exploiting him eating him from out from the inside Well, let's talk about your point that his parents are sympathetic, that his family is Mm -hmm. sympathetic. Mm -hmm. What the fuck would you do Mm -hmm. if you had a six foot cockroach in your second Mm -hmm. bedroom of your house? Mm -hmm. How do you know this is even your son anymore? Like at the very Mm -hmm. beginning, he tries to speak. And so there's like a little bit of a garbled voice. But like, I'm talking about several weeks into, it's just like, is this even your child? Their ambivalence on that is completely understandable, I think. Yeah. And it's something that his sister says explicitly in the last section when she has her big blow up and tells the parents that they've got to get rid of him. Well, uh, rid she of says, it. rid of it. Yeah. She says, that's not Gregor anymore. Or that's mm-hmm. not Gregor. That's something else like she doesn't have as much as many flashy scenes as the father or the sister but she is like const she's grieving for this whole this whole damn story the mother she's grieving for her son her mo- the mother is yeah 
And like the scene where they go in and she wants to go in and see her son. She wants to go in. But then when they finally go, when she finally goes in to help move the furniture, she gets scared walking in and he, I'm getting for Klimt here. He hides from her, right? Mm-hmm. He pulls down the sheet on him specifically in a way that makes it look like not someone is hiding, but that uh, a sheet was thrown down. And as he is, as he is watching them take the furniture out of the room, the, you know, at first he was like thankful for his sister. Cause she's like, Oh, he wants to be able to crawl around mm-hmm. uh, the, the walls and stuff. And while his mother and his sister are in there trying to move the furniture to clear the walls. His mother is like, no, like these things remind him of like who he is. Yeah. And he starts recognizing that too. And he's just like, no, I don't want them to bring this stuff out anymore. Yeah. Um, and he goes and tries to save the picture, particularly the picture of the woman in, in the, in, in, in the furs. Mm-hmm. Um, and the mother finally, and they come in and she faints. Mm-hmm. Um, and he feels like terrible, right? Like he's he feels he's, terrible. Yeah. He, like this isn't what he wanted. And then the father comes home and he tries to go out to try to explain to his father, like, no. Mm-hmm. And his father just freaks out and he starts throwing apples at him. And at first it's yeah. just like, it's described as like, he's just kind of lobbing apples across the room, but then he just starts chucking them at him. And yeah. one of the apples gets like stuck in like mm-hmm. his segments. Yeah. It sits there and eventually as the story goes on. I mean, eventually that kind of kills him, sort of. Do you think there's a significance that it's an apple? It's a loaded symbol. It's a loaded symbol. I've seen the apple connected with fertility, and I've seen people say that it's very suggestive that the father, this masculine presence, is throwing these round globes of fertility at his son, which is a quasi-Freudian reading. (laughs) what do you see what significance do you see in the apples well i do i do see something like with original sin i i I do see something i mean shit i i'm sorry i see an apple that's where my mind's gonna go i mean it is a symbol of knowledge and at least in my understanding or interpretation right it is something like fundamentally understanding um divine knowledge Tying back to this being an absurdist work, which is like being absurdist is inherently without sense, without any kind of meaning or reason that this thing that kills him is a symbol of divine knowledge, a symbol of how things are supposed to work. Also, and maybe this is just kind of more basic, but like that's something that is supposed to be a nutritious thing is something that kills him while Mm -hmm. he he wants to eat like garbage and trash and stuff and doesn't want to eat fresh things. And like the thing that gets lodged in him is a is a fresh apple. But but more to the point, I think like that idea of how it interacts with this being an absurdist text. And that takes us to the end of section two with him 
again being driven into his room. So every one of these sections involves him returning to his room. The central action is like leaving the room and then going back to the room. And uh, well, and, so. and and being driven back to his room specifically by the violence of his father. Yeah, exactly. In yeah. in the in the first section with his cane, in the second section with the the apples. With the apples. In section three, we get to the pathos of the story. Yeah, can I can I read this for a second? The beginning of section three. The grievous wound Gregor had received, which plagued him for over a month, the apple remained lodged there in his flesh, a visible memento, since no one dared to remove it seemed to have reminded even his father that Gregor, despite his current lamentable, repulsive form, was a member of the family who should not be treated like an enemy, for family duty detailed that the others swallow down the disgust he aroused in them and show him tolerance, only tolerance. After his father lodges this apple in him that he hides away for a month and is clearly like withering away, right? He's just like, oh maybe we should show him tolerance, only tolerance. And what that tolerance is, is they open up the door so he can sort of observe them while they eat dinner. Yeah. And so you get these family scenes where they're sitting and eating and he's sitting in his darkened room, just watching them through, it's the, sad. through the doorway. It is sad. It's so sad because through it, you can see the affection that he has for them that mm-hmm. not only do they not have for him, but that they never had for him. Except for maybe his sister. And of course, that's like one of the things that for audiences that shifts over it is like in the beginning of the novella, his sister is the one bringing him food and caring for him. But by the end of it, she is the one that's just like, we need to leave here. And she starts yeah. referring to Gregor as it. Uh, yeah. it, it. It has ruined us. It is not Gregor anymore. During all of this, they take on lodgers, which are basically three men with beards they're bearded like that's they're like the, that's, that's, the, their that's their description yeah they all I have was beards. trying to figure it's out funny, if there's right? some sort of yeah i think it's just three beardy men who are very particular about cleanliness and that's we should point out uh backing up he makes one friend kind yes of yes during you are absolutely right we should not we, we should overlook the her. char woman so they they employ a char woman who every day will open the door and say things like come on then you old dung beetle and <laughs> look at the old dung beetle which you know we we shouldn't assume that he's actually a dung beetle this is just a a term of endearment that she I was going to say like the biggest him. the biggest point of this is that she enters the room when no one else does Mm-hmm. We should emphasize that by this point, the room has become this source. It, it's refuse. Yeah. There's there. They don't clean it. They just keep moving stuff in. It's mm-hmm. just a gross room. Um, it's but precisely the, tra- the opposite movement from what happens in the second section. In the second section, they move everything out of it. Right. right, right and right. now they're moving everything back in. And refusing to clean it and open the yep. window and all the shit. But like, yeah, the charwoman. So like, not only, yeah, like saying you dung beetle, like we're like, ironic words of endearment and i think gregor senses them as such but she Mm -hmm. she sees him like she sees gregor and is not bothered by him this is interesting because like she's not as we see when we get to the end she doesn't necessarily see gregor as a person 
at the end of the story, after he dies, she's the one that makes a joke about getting rid of him. It's not that she is seeing him as a person, but she sees him as a curiosity and she has a certain amount of affection for him as a curiosity. She's not afraid of him, which is important, Mm -hmm. uh, whereas his family are. And so at this point, the only human contact Gregor has is with someone who doesn't necessarily value him, but she's just not afraid of him. And that seems to be all the affection he gets. I feel like she has a certain amount of affection for him. I feel like when she says those things, I feel like it's more like a pet thing though. Yeah. 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 You know, but like that, but like there's affection there. It doesn't necessarily recognize him as like human. Yeah. I think, I think her attitude towards him is how some people, uh, I know you very much love your pets and they're like important parts of the family, but some people, the way that some people view their, their pets, where they're like, they keep them at a distance. So it's like, there's affection for them, but they don't yeah. value them as part of the family. And like something people that have like an them, outdoor dog that just keep them on a fucking leash outside. Right. And so it's not like part of the family love it's affection. But if something happens to them, you're like, Oh, that's sad. And you move on. Yeah. Right? Which is exactly what she does. She's just like, Oh, okay. He's dead now. I guess that story's over. So I think that that would be how he's being treated here, how Gregor is being treated here by her, which is to some extent, I think, preferable to, to the way his family treats him. Yeah, I was going to say, like, let's back up to, like, the way that his family treats him, you know, why he dies. Because, yeah. like, they're rent, like, they're renting, they're, they're renting some of their room out to, like, these three bearded lodgers. And then Greta, his, his sister who he wanted to pay to go to the conservatory for violin. She, she was playing some violin. They were like, Oh, this is nice. And then like his parents are like, Oh my God, like these are three bearded men. This could be a good courting thing. And Mm -hmm. she, they, they bring out like a, a stand and sheet music and she plays and the men get very bored and they're just like listening out of politeness and they don't want to be there. And Gregor like recognizes that and eventually like Gregor comes out and they freak out and they're like, ah, we're not going to pay you anymore. Blah, blah, blah. The family yells at him and he goes back inside. Like, I guess like I, I really am unloved in this family. I will go back into my room and go under the bed, like where I always go and die. And um, I just want to read like that very last paragraph of it because it's um so fucking sad especially in contrast to like the opening paragraph of it which is just so absurd um as for the rest he felt relatively at ease admittedly his entire body was racked with pain but it seemed to him as if it was gradually becoming weaker and weaker in the end would fade away altogether already he could scarcely feel the rotting apple in his back nor the inflamed area surrounding it both now enveloped in soft dust He thought back on his family with tenderness and love. His opinion that he must by all means disappear was possibly even more emphatic than that of his sister. 
He remained in a state of empty, peaceful reflection until the clock tower struck the third hour of morning. He watched as everything began to lighten outside his window. Then his head sank all the way to the floor without volition, and from his nostrils, his last breath faintly streamed. That paragraph, man, I, I find it heartbreaking. Yeah. That, like, I mean, he just retreats and he's just like, oh, yeah, like the, the sun's coming up and no one loves me. So I'm just going to curl up and die. So the charwoman's like, yeah, he's dead in there. And they're like, <laughs> well, we're going to leave. And they, and they yeah. all move out. And then it ends with them all reflecting on Greta's quote unquote young body. Like, oh, we will be able to get some suitors because like we mm-hmm. have this fit young young woman and it just like it's like the whole thing didn't matter at all like it had affected right. them they're just like well we have to move on how are we going to move on with money uh, i guess we're going to try to find a good suitor for greta yeah they um they don't even want to know what happens to the body the charwoman comes out and says, says, okay, so do you want to know what happened to the body? And basically, Mr. Zamsa says, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> nope. And, but now, this is, this is something that there's a sense to me in which I get the feeling that there is a purposeful ignoring of what happened on the part of his family. So this is a couple paragraphs from the end of the story. Mm -hmm. They decided to spend this day in resting and going for a stroll. They had not only deserved such a respite from work, but absolutely needed it. And so they sat down at the table and wrote three notes of excuse, which is, you know, something that Gregor never did. So jumping on down, while they were riding, the charwoman came in to say that she was going now since her morning's work was finished. At first, they only nodded without looking up, but as she kept hovering there, they eyed her irritably. Well, said Mr. Zamza, the charwoman stood grinning in the doorway as if she had good news to impart to the family. Well, what is it then? asked Mrs. Zamza, who obtained more respect from the charwoman than the others. Oh, said the charwoman, giggling so amiably she could not at once continue just this. You don't need to bother about how to get rid of the thing next door. It's been seen to already. Mrs. Zamsa and Greta bent over their letters again, as if preoccupied. Mr. Zamsa, who perceived that she was eager to begin describing it all in detail, stopped her with a decisive hand. But since she was not allowed to tell the story, she remembered the great hurry she was in, obviously deeply huffed by everybody, she said, whirling off violently and departed with a frightful slamming of doors. She'll be given notice tonight said Mr. Zamsa, but neither from his wife nor his daughter did he get any answer, for the charwoman seemed to have shattered again the composure they had barely achieved. So, like, it's absolutely true that at the end of this story, Gregor dies and his family goes on with their lives. There's also, to me, in that section, the sense that they're purposefully trying to keep from thinking about it. Mm-hmm. They're writing the letters and then the charwoman woman comes in to remind them of what's happened. And they're like, no, we don't want to hear it. Go away. And we're going to fire her because we don't want any memory of this around us. Going back to the mother grieving in, in section two, 
going back to the the sisters uh, changing attitude there's a purposeful forgetting on the part of the family they're not just inhuman monsters who mm-hmm. don't value gregor all the father might be but what they are instead is they're people who are dealing with this like incredible trauma <laughs> bizarre trauma that they've just gone through and rather than facing it and properly working through grief or whatever they're shutting it out they're saying no 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 we're not going to think about it we're not going to talk about it we're going to go and have a holiday absurdism or not kafka is in the story very attentive to the way that human minds actually work i think this is how many people would respond if someone that they loved was turned into a beetle and then died of starvation because they didn't feed him. Very few insects are more detested than the cockroach. Even the word itself can be an insult. Hey, you cockroach, get out of here. So let's say you've got cockroaches in your home or your office or God forbid your favorite restaurant and you decide you're going to get rid of them. Here's what you're up against. The cockroach doesn't really have a brain per se, but it has instinct and a ferocious desire to survive and reproduce. As part of my prep for this, I I read Vladimir Nabokov's lecture on this. Um, It's in his collection, Lectures on Literature. It's typically Nabokovian. He's got great lines like, beauty plus pity that is the closest we can get to a definition of art. But he makes a couple of really interesting uh, suggestions that I want to highlight. One is that what sets Kafka apart from what he considers lower tier fantastic fiction like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is the emphasis on the central human character. Uh, He says the beauty of Kafka and Gogol's private nightmares is that their central human characters belong to the same private fantastic world as the inhuman characters around them. But the central one tries to get out of that world to cast off the mask, to transcend the cloak or the carapace. So what he suggests is that Kafka creates a fantastic, horrible world. And within that world, we have the what's the word he uses, beautiful and limpid personality of Gregor. For Nabokov, Gregor is the only real human in this story. His family behaves inhumanly towards him. Uh, Nabokov somewhere says that they are the real vermin. Gregor, meanwhile, is genius surrounded by mediocrity, who is trying to realize his, his true humanity and dies right? That's the tragedy is that is for, for Nabokov. It's that Gregor tries to be more than just another bug. And then he dies. Uh, do you have any, do you have any thoughts on that, uh, that particular reading? No, not really. I mean, I, 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 I get the reading. I just, I don't know that I, I don't know that like, I agree kind of what you were talking about like with 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 his parents as readers because of the third person limited narration that it is as readers we see gregor as human throughout 
we understand that he's not in a human body, but we understand he has consciousness. Even when he starts like recognizing like, oh my gosh, like when I just sit on the ceiling and rock back and forth, I get absent-minded. And like, he gets these sort of thoughts of um, losing that human consciousness. But because of the narration, we see him as human throughout. This is something I always like need to remind myself of. And I think that Novikov is ignoring here. It is not, unfair if the family no longer sees this bug as gregor or if they know if it's gregor anymore yeah he can't communicate with them if he tries to talk with them it's just (laughs) and that's what makes it so tragic but i don't i don't blame the family for it i mean i kind of blame them because like I would be like, well, even if it's not Gregor, like, come on, buddy. Like, and I would give it a big <laughs> hug. Um, come here, you dung beetle. He come here, you dung beetle. <laughs> I, 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 I'm like one of those bug pacifists. Like I put them outside as much as I you're can. Like, you're like uncle Toby and in, in Tristram Shandy, where he gets the fly <laughs> and he opens the window and he lets it go. It says fly away, little fly. Thou hast as much a right to live as I. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, except for like mosquitoes and ticks. Those are the only things I, where I'm, I'm like, no, I'm going to fucking burn in hell. Yeah. Besides <laughs> those, like I really do. I'm like, even flies. I'm, but like all this is to say, like, I, I agree with you. And I think that Novikov is being unfair in that is parent his family is very sympathetic if novikov's point is that the critique that it levels against the against them like that i understand that like they have yeah. to subscribe to this sort of system in which blah 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 blah, blah. like that i get but like i think if we are to approach this in any semblance of realism which even though this is absurdist like that's part of it is it's told through realism there's an even darker reading of this that did occur to me that I I don't subscribe to. Okay. Let's be clear. But there's an even darker reading of this, which is that at the end, his family's better off once he dies. What do you mean? Well, I mean, before, before Gregor is transformed, we have this very interesting situation. The father is basically in his sunset years. The, the mother is practically an invalid. Mm-hmm. The sister seems to be okay. After Gregor is transformed, the father is transformed. The father goes out and gets a job, which, you know, capitalism, whatever. But also, he becomes more physically healthy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, becomes, he becomes, like, in some ways, a better person because now he's taking responsibility instead of living off of his son. But they're still stuck in this house because they have to stay here to take care of Gregor. But once Gregor dies, they can sell the house or or move out of the house. They can get another apartment. The daughter is, she's now in the full bloom of womanhood. She's ready to go out and make a family. It ends with them finally leaving this apartment that we've all been stuck in for the whole story. A, a very depressed way to read this would be that would be to say, yeah, Gregor was a drag on the family and they're better I, off now. <laughs> <laughs> I guess what I would respond to that is like, let's look at the entirety of the story and the tone of it. They are going to live happily ever after. Based on oh. everything we read here, like this, they they're gonna live happily ever after. Yep, the daughter is gonna <laughs> find they're gonna find some 
great suitor that's going to give have some huge dowry. Yeah, no, right, no, their life is not going to be good after this. Well, yeah, well, and, and the point about them moving apartments is is kind of key here because they stayed in that apartment because Gregor paid for it. They're mm-hmm. moving out because they can't afford it. They're moving yes. out because even with three incomes, they can't afford to, the that he was doing himself. That he was doing himself. So they're making a downward movement mm-hmm. in society. And so you're quite right that that last paragraph is maybe I, I won't say satirical, but it's ironic because it the, the last paragraph is suffused with things like warm sunshine, good promise for the future, blah blah blah, and then we end with. Greta's young body. She had blossomed into a beautiful, voluptuous girl. Yeah, I think you're actually right. I think that that's all ironic. That's the robin at the end of Blue Velvet with the fake worm in its mouth, right? (laughs) The the promise of a happy future, but it's artificial. It's fake. The entirety of the story is about the contingency of embodiment. And literally the last words of it are her young body. We just read an entire story about like how the body is um, not something that's dependable. So the metamorphosis has been pretty influential. I've just got the Wikipedia page on the metamorphosis in popular culture up here. Yeah. I was looking at that before. There's been at least five movies based on this thing, animated short films, television films, uh, almost none of them are easy to find. Like right. I found one, I think I found one movie adaptation on YouTube, but it's in Russian and the guy doesn't actually change into a bug. So I'm not actually <laughs> sure that it's the metamorphosis. Uh, it may just be something called the metamorphosis. I want to point out a couple, and then I know you've got some that you want to point out. Uh, R. Crumb, Robert Crumb, has done an adaptation called R. Crumb's Kafka. Well, you should There's, tell you should tell our audience who R. Crumb is. Oh, he's a, a cartoonist, underground cartoonist from the. I guess he's still working, but he started in the what seventies. 60s, 70s, yeah. 60s and 70s, yeah. Very controversial. More controversial the further into the 21st century we get. (laughs) Uh, He created Fritz the Cat, and then there is a a movie of Fritz the Cat that he hates. Uh, It's a good movie. Uh, I liked it too, yeah. Yeah, I like it. This is the tremendous influence, and this isn't even to to touch on the places where you can see obvious sort of Kafkaesque resonances in stuff like uh, David Lynch's first feature, Eraserhead, which yes. is, you know, very Kafkaesque. And I think it owes a lot to the metamorphosis in particular. You found a couple of really cool things that you want to talk about, right? Well, I mean, we'll be fair. I, I appreciate you uh, <laughs> being humble, but you found them and pointed them out to me, but then I did look at them. So one of them is called the Meow Morphosis. So it's Franz Kafka and Coleridge Cook. It's kind of in that um, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Or yeah, it's from the same publisher. It is from the same publisher, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this one is if... Well, I guess I'll just read the first line. One morning, as Gregor Samsa was waking up from anxious dreams, he discovered that he had been changed into an adorable kitten. And it, you know, it's 
the metamorphosis, but he's a, 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 a kitten the whole time. One of the things about this, the end, like mm-hmm. when Gregor decides to just die, it's so sad. It's like in his pink nostrils, he let out his last breath. Another so, one. So, to, to be clear, Coleridge Cook here actually pulls the trigger and goes to the full dark ending with Gregor dying. Yes. In this. Okay. Okay. I was wondering about that uh, because. Yeah. Let me, let me find it. Ba, 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 ba. He hardly even noticed the collar pulling tightly around his neck in the inflamed surrounding area where his fur was entirely covered with white dust. His body grew around it and in the mounds of fur, the thing could hardly be seen. It pulled tighter. He could not feel it. Not really. He remembered his family with deep feelings of love. He thought that he must disappear, that this decision was, if possible, even more certain than his sister's. He remained in the state of empty and peaceful reflection until the tower clock struck three o'clock in the morning. Through the window, he witnessed the beginning of dawn outside. Then, without willing it, his head sank all the way down, and from his moist pink nostrils, over his still beautiful fur, flowed out weakly his last breath it seemed to him as the breath left him that he had heard the great cat's song once more and the circle of some kind seemed to shut within him so he yeah. keeps the ending yeah okay this this, okay. this little kitten dies and describes it through its little pink nostrils and oh my gosh yeah. it is so tragic okay so so moving on to something lighter you've got a <laughs> a graphic novel right <laughs> yeah and then there is yeah sorry and then there is this graphic novel it's franz kafka adapted by peter cooper um it is three rivers press and it is a black and white graphic novel illustration of it i really like the art in it but we're going to be talking about a very 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 indirect adaptation yeah yeah exceedingly exceedingly indirect we're going to be talking about David Cronenberg's remake of The Fly, which you've seen the original. I love it. Quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And I have not. And this was also my first time watching The Fly. So Mm. we can dig into that after the break. Yes, absolutely. We'll dig into that. Then we can really start talking about body horror, I think. Yeah, there was a very specific scene in here where I had to stop looking at the screen. It has to do with my own neuroses and pathologies. Uh, But we'll talk about that when we get back. Yes, definitely. All right, we'll be right back, y'all. Please, please. All right, show me where. Wait in the house. There's a good boy for
All right, so we're coming back. This is the Projectionist Lending Library. We began talking about Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis, and then we briefly before the break talked about the very widespread ways in which it's been adapted. But for the for the rest of the episode, we're primarily going to talk about David Cronenberg's The Fly, 1986, uh, starring Jeff Goldblum and Sheena Davis, which we both have a lot to say about it, and we'll get there. One of the yeah. things I did want to say first is it is based on a previous movie, a movie that I really like that, Nathaniel, you said you haven't seen. I've not seen it, no. Um yeah, 1958, The Fly. You would love this movie. Just flat out, you would love this movie. First of all, it stars Vincent Price. And unlike the Cronenberg movie, it's like a mystery. Um, okay. So it starts out, it, it starts out with a wife trying to say, like, I killed my husband. And they're like, what? Oh, like, we need to arrest her. She's killed her husband. What do you mean she killed her husband? And... Vincent Price is he's Andre's brother so he is her brother-in-law and he is like some sort of I don't know investigator detective of some sort and they eventually like you know he goes to their house and go down into his basement it's like oh he's some sort of mad scientist type thing and he did cross himself with a fly and in one part we see this it's like a human person, but it has a big fly head on it. And then later, the very end of the movie, it's that sort of like Hitchcockian end, right? You know what I'm talking about. You've seen this at least. I've seen the end of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Help me. Help, Help me. me. <laughs> Help me. <laughs> and it's so great. I rewatched it. Like I watched it after the fly. I really do like that movie. And it was actually better than I remember because I didn't remember it being this sort of murder mystery thing. Mm-hmm. With Vincent Price, I just remembered the end and like the sort of like the monster yeah. stuff in it. But yeah, so I mean, that was that. Of course, Cronenberg turns it into something wildly more uh, disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> A fun story about this movie. This is something I did know before seeing it. You know, it's produced by Mel Brooks. And apparently for one of the early showings, the people who had set up the showing didn't realize that it wasn't a comedy because they thought that Mel Brooks was producing it. It must be a comedy. So they handed out a bunch of little hats with little spinny, (laughs) spinny wings on the top because it's the fly. (laughs) So they were handing out these hats and then people sit down and they watch this movie, which is you know, it's it's accessible Cronenberg, but it's very definitely Cronenbergian. Where does this stand like in his career? Okay, so his first work was in the 1960s. 1970, he did The First Crimes of the Future. He had already done Scanners, Videodrome, The Dead Zone by the time he did The Fly. So he's pretty well established, but I think this is maybe the movie that takes him to more general audiences who aren't just watching things like Scanners and Videodrome. Yeah, those uh, are definitely, I, I feel like, a little bit more, uh, what, underground or yeah. indie. Like, you'd only find it, like, in an indie theater where The Fly, by the very nature of sort of, it's 1986, it's, it's horror adjacent. It has a wider appeal and I think has a larger release than his other movies, right? Yeah, I think so. And then after that, of course, he goes on and he makes Naked Lunch, M Butterfly, Crash, Existence. I don't I've never seen any of those. 
I've seen, let's see, I've seen M Butterfly, which is good. I've seen Existence, which is good. I've not seen his crash. I've not seen either of the crash movies, but I'll watch what crash. Like what crash? What is it? This one is about, it's based on a Ballard novel about people who get into car crashes for sexual reasons. Okay. It's not that drug one. It's not. No, it's not the one that won the. Yeah. Okay. Like that doesn't seem like him. No, no. Well, what did you want to say about the 1986 fly? I actually wanted to start with asking you why this movie? Because when I read The Metamorphosis and then watched The Fly, they don't seem to me to have a lot in common. They're interested in different things. And so I'm curious about why you think that these go together. That's a very good question. The very basic answer. (laughs) Thought I'd put them together. We'll see what happens. But like, no, I mean, like, honestly, it was just like, I fucking... I love The Metamorphosis. It's one of my favorite short story novellas like ever. Like I love it so much. And you and I had talked about it, but there's not a adaptation I want to do with it. And so I just mm-hmm. thought of The Fly. It's another story about someone turning into a bug. Mm-hmm. A movie I, I actually really like, though not as affectionate to it as I am towards Cockpit's Metamorphosis. Also, audience should know this was sort of a uh, like pulling a rabbit out of a hat episode. It wasn't planned initially. We hadn't done an episode yet where it's not a straight adaptation, I guess. Right. I think both of these metamorphosis and the fly lend themselves to horror. So, yeah, I, I thought that they would be interesting to talk in conversation with one another. Well, I will point out there is at least one edition of The Metamorphosis that does have an introduction by David Cronenberg, uh, the mm-hmm. Norton paperback translation by Susan Bernofsky has an introduction by Cronenberg. So this is something that, you know, we're not totally making up a connection here. <laughs> this is a connection that has been seen and acknowledged. Mm-hmm. Where do we want to begin talking about this? I've got, I want to talk about body horror and I want to talk about sex but i want to start i want to start by making a very basic observation i'm going to make uh, like get my zizek i'll make a naive observation about the movie versus the book sniffle 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 pull my shirt (laughs) tell a dirty joke about someone this is how we bond in europe we tell jokes about each other Uh, um, just a naive observation here The metamorphosis begins with Gregor Samsa already transformed. The transformation is complete. Any transformation that he goes through in the course of the story is entirely psychological, Mm -hmm. right? He's, he he feels himself thinking more like an insect at various points. What do you mean by thinking like an insect? It just says he's more absent-minded. Well, he, it also, also he starts to prefer being on the ceiling he starts oh, okay. to like things you like he feels his taste in food changing but these are oh, all we're getting into like behavioral psychology because those aren't necessarily right. what we think he knows or likes those are behaviors that we are well i think within kafka that's that's what's going on right i think within the story he's beginning to behave more like an insect hiding uh, under the bed hiding under like the bed like being like in the dark yeah like that's yeah. what a cockroach wants to do yes In the case of the fly, 
Brundle is not a fly at the beginning, and we witness a physical transformation. There's also a psychological transformation that goes on, and he, he talks about it. But the interest in this is primarily watching the process of seeing his body change. Or in the first half of the movie, just seeing his body, because Jeff Goldblum was kind of a dish back in the day. Oh, <laughs> so, so there's that going on. Dude, when he first comes out, he's in the underwear and like uh-huh. him and Gina Davis, like first, like, you know, uh-huh. get intimate. But that's when she first like, because they're getting right intimate and she like touches his back and it's just like these like right. things sticking out of it. It's not quite wings yet but you're right like it's sexy goldblum is sexy in it like mm-hmm. when he walks out like in that and and that's obviously all on purpose oh definitely definitely <laughs> if we're thinking about things that differentiate this from the metamorphosis the focus on sex the, the metamorphosis is a lot of things it's not a sexy novella there's um, no sex there's there's like, no sex in this so for kafka at least in the metamorphosis sex might as well not exist for cronenberg in the fly sex is all there is and i think this is very intimately tied to the way that body horror actually works in this story i mean it is 1986 sex and death in the 80s and particularly the late 80s were increasingly identified with each other and in in that, I mean, obviously, you're talking about the AIDS. Yeah, I'm talking um, about the AIDS epidemic. There's definitely a, a way in which people wanted to read that on bodies. Mm-hmm. Well, th- this is important. Brundle's transformation is not the result of sex, but it's intimately linked to sex. He, he decides to send himself through the through the transporter in a fit of sexual jealousy because his, Stuart Little's mom. Gina Davis has gone to see her ex mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. something. And so he sends himself through and then he starts transforming. And he links this both before and after this to getting to know the flesh. He says, mm-hmm. I don't know enough about the flesh. And then they have sex. And then he gets this bright idea that lets him figure out how to transport living meat. And then afterwards, <laughs> afterwards he says something i i've got it written somewhere he says something about knowing the flesh and he says it's not just about penetration he's talking about going beyond the veil of flesh which we know that he's transforming because he's been spliced with a fly but he doesn't know that (laughs) and so he thinks he's undergoing some sort of a evolution Hmm. but it's it's conceived of haha it's conceived of in sexual terms for him but what it brings is this bodily transformation initially it looks like a bad rash and weird hairs and then eventually the part that really got me is his fingernails start coming out uh so his fingernails start coming out his teeth start coming out his flesh is just rotting uh, and he's like vomiting to eat Part of the body horror, too, in it is not only his own body change, but when he grabs the other guy and vomits on his hand because mm-hmm. flies have to basically puke on their food to disintegrate it before they can slurp it up. He also undergoes a psychological transformation. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, towards the end of the movie, he he tells Gina Davis that she needs to leave because insects don't have mercy, and he's afraid he's going to hurt her. That to me was a significant difference from the metamorphosis. In the metamorphosis, even though we see these psychological changes going on in Gregor, he remains this sort of kind, limpid, pure soul in this insect body. In the fly his very personality starts changing along with his body at the very end when he's actually like this big ass fly. And I actually find it really cute. And maybe I'm a weirdo for thinking. So it probably has to do with because the big eyes, but like, I'm like, Oh my God, like don't, it looked like a fucking big Muppet of some sort, but whatever, like a fleshy slimy one, but a Muppet nonetheless. But when it pulls up the shotgun to its head. Yeah. I, that, mm, that like affected me. And that is, if I can at least put a pin in this right now, that is one way where, again, I saw this hook up with Kafka's metamorphosis. Mm. Let me very quickly summarize what we're talking about because we've not summarized the film. At the end of the movie, Gina Davis is kidnapped by Jeff Goldblum and he wants to perform this three-way transport that will blend her and him and her unborn fetus into a single entity. He's doing this partly because he thinks that the way to become human again is by merging with more human DNA because probably because he still loves her, but B because he's an insect and he has no mercy. Now he's going to use her to merge. That's him. He says insects have no mercy. That's the text of the film. I'm not talking about real insects. I'm talking about Cronenberg movie insects. So he's going to merge with her. There's the fight. Something goes wrong. He winds up merged with part of the pod. He's crawling out. She pulls up a shotgun and she's about to shoot him, but she can't. And then he reaches up and he puts the shotgun on his head. In his little like insect little, little claw. Cute insect hands. Yeah. Yeah. It's like fuzzy. Yeah. Little fuzzy insect hands. He puts and um <laughs> she winds up shooting him. And in, in that, it's like that's the scene. end of the movie. Yeah. This, and I, I was like you, I was very affected by that. I didn't, most of the stuff in the last half of the film, I wasn't uh, like, it was fine, but I wasn't connecting with it too much. But that last, that last <clears> scene <throat> and particularly him putting the gun on his head. Yeah. That got me. I was like, wow. That's- you know, what's weird with that? It sounds like you had the same response that I did. And I had this thought about my own thinking, a meta thought, whatever. As he's turning into the bug, I don't have the sympathy. He's gross and he's terrible and the shit he's doing is fucked up. But then when he's like the actual bug, it's like, oh, I have emotions now. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what to do with that, and, but it, it's yeah. an interesting thing. Once he turns totally non-human, we have more sympathy than when he's barely human. Okay, so two things with that. One thing is he's not talking as a bug because part of what's going on during the transformation is he's talking through things. And sometimes he's scared. Sometimes he's ecstatic. Sometimes he's he's all over the place. And we're seeing it through Gina Davis's eyes, mostly through her eyes. So what we see is this really scary change. Once he's transformed, he's not talking anymore. Mm-hmm. And second, and I think this is very important, he is totally helpless. Yeah. Once he's transported through, he's got part of the door to the pod he transported from stuck inside of him. 
He's crawling along the floor towards her. He's totally helpless. So what that allows us to do is see him not as a sort of creepy monster, to see him not as someone who's abducting her, which he does, but to see him as something that's, I mean, he doesn't have long to live anyway. He's got a door through his heart, right? He doesn't have, or whatever he, whatever flies have. He doesn't have long anyway. And so I think that allows us to engage a certain level of empathy or at least pity that we don't engage when he's super strong and climbing on ceilings, which he does at one point. Although I will say when he is climbing on ceilings at first, it reminds me of the metamorphosis because when she comes in, he's Mm -hmm. kind of like hiding, right? Yeah. In the way that Gregor hides. When we come back, I want to talk about, I think of the fly in relation to the metamorphosis the way that you thought of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in relation to Play It As It Lays. It's like the anti-version of it. Okay, okay, good. I want to hear this. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. No, not you. You're too chicken shit to be a member of the Dynamic Duo Club? Okay, then great. I'll find somebody else. Somebody who can keep up with me. Seth, you have to listen to me. You're afraid to dive into the plasma pool, aren't you? You're afraid to be destroyed, recreated, aren't you? I bet you think that you woke me up about the flesh, don't you? But you only know society's straight line about the flesh. You can't penetrate beyond society's sick, gray fear of the flesh. Drink deep or taste not the plasma spring. See what I'm saying? I'm not just talking about sex and penetration. I'm talking about penetration beyond the veil of the flesh. A deep, penetrating dive into the plasma pool. One of the things that you asked me about was why this movie Mm. with this story one of the things that I considered quite a bit in rewatching this and rereading it actually reminds me of our conversation about play it as it lays and once upon a time in Hollywood in, 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 in the way that the fly seems to be almost an anti metamorphosis. It negates it in almost every kind of way. First of all, who the person is, we have this brilliant scientist versus just everyday salesperson. The character out the gate, it's high status or somebody very special versus just like an everyday person. Along with that, that comes with that is a sense of agency that mm-hmm. for Seth Brundle, he actively seeks this. Well, not necessarily actively seeks turning into a fly, but he has like this influence on what happens to him mm-hmm. as opposed to Gregor Samsa, who just has no influence and he just wakes right. up this way, right? Like he can't, this just happens to him. He's much more passive. This takes us back to that naive observation <clears throat> that I made a bit ago that the metamorphosis begins with the metamorphosis completed and the fly, we watch it take place. Right. 
with the character, Gregor Samsa, this happens to him. Yeah, exactly. They ultimately, though, kind of come back to, I think, somewhat of the same critique, which is labor and work and industry turns human beings into something other than human beings. So, like, Brundle is transformed by his work because he's he's doing something that will change the world right that's what he says right it's specifically something that's going to aid the march of global capitalism in a way because it's instantaneous travel right right? that's going to fix travel it's going to fix shipping it's going to fix all these things yeah he says this direct quote i hate vehicles yeah (laughs) which i mean lord knows i agree with him i could use a teleporter any day but he's working for a corporation and he's very open about the fact that anything he develops is the intellectual property of the corporation so he's actually kind of alienated from from that labor and he still works on it and it leads to his transformation am i charting with what you're saying pretty well yes absolutely I also think that part of it is the um, way in which it's told, or like the style of it, but the way in which the narration of the metamorphosis is it's treated as, I don't want to say unremarkable, because obviously the way that his family responds to it is remarkable, mm-hmm. but it's not treated as, the style and depiction and tone of it is not treated as fantastical in the way right. in which like the fly is treated fantastical. Yeah. You have anything else you want to say about the uh, the movie, the story? Well, I, I want to follow up on this because you talk about the fly as being sort of antithetical to the metamorphosis. But one thing you didn't touch on that I think is key mm-hmm. is the way that people respond to Brundle versus the way they respond to to Gregor Zamsa. In The Metamorphosis, Gregor is an object of first fear, then pity, and then neglect. And his death is, no one really cares when he dies. (laughs) Like, they're kind of relieved. It's over. In the case of Brundle, yes, there's fear. There's horror, even. And and on on the part of Gina Davis's, the Gina Davis character's ex-boyfriend there's a certain amount of contempt although even he makes a really weird character transformation partway through the the movie i i i would like to think a little bit about how that character changes over the course of the movie but i want to put a pin in that for a second i want to focus primarily on the gina davis character Mm -hmm. she never abandons brundle brundle abandons her there's one scene where she picks up the phone and she says where have you been it's been four weeks Uh, And then at the very end, she decides that she can't deal with it. She can't deal with the possibility that she's going to give birth to a mutant maggot baby. So she's going in to get an abortion. And so then he goes and he kidnaps her. He takes her back. We have the, the sort of climax of the movie. My point is she never neglects him. Even when she's saying, I can't deal with this, I've got to go, blah, blah, blah. It's not the sort of neglect that we see from the sister in the metamorphosis where she just gets tired of feeding him and stops. So the the character's relationships and their attitudes towards Brundle strike me as being much more involved in wow, this is weird, someone's transforming into a fly, 
as opposed to in the metamorphosis where it's like, oh, that's annoying. He's a bug now and we have to feed him and don't know that I can deal with that. So I think, I think psychologically there's different stuff going on in terms of their relationships. A big part of that is that Brundle is in a sexual relationship with the Gina Davis character, whereas uh, Gregor is not in a sexual relationship with his sister. Right. I also think that a um, difference in, because we see this transformation in, in Seth Brundle, he says, I'm not Brundle anymore. He has a recognition that he is not who he was. Mm-hmm. Where not only do we not have that with Gregor Samsa, but he he cannot right. communicate that. But we also feel that he still always is Gregor Samsa. Yeah, yeah. In the way that Seth Brundle is not. Exactly, exactly. So they get it fundamentally similar things but gregor samsa and seth brundle are like fundamentally like opposite people mm-hmm. yeah so yeah very briefly because i know we've been recording for some time and it's late <laughs> where you are <laughs> i want to touch on two things let me start by touching on the character of of the ex-boyfriend okay because I think there's something really interesting done with his character, and I'm not sure how I feel about it. And then I want to move on. I want to talk a little bit about eroticism and body horror in in Cronenberg particularly, and how that contrasts to the way that the metamorphosis handles it. Okay. So the editor. Okay, so first of all, he's a creep when we first meet him. He's sneaking into his ex-girlfriend's home and showering we find out later that he was an instructor at the university when she was a graduate student or an undergrad and he he started dating her there so very 22 2022 voice there was an obvious power imbalance (laughs) (laughs) Um, i'm not sure that that would have read the same in 1986 as it does now but he's just not a nice guy The weird thing to me is that over the course of the movie, as Brundle becomes more and more inhuman and he becomes more and more problematic as a person in terms of the sorts of things he does. I mean, he's a little bit creepy at the beginning, but he gets really creepy towards the end. I mean, he's he ends the movie by kidnapping the Gina Davis character and wanting to fuse bodies with her. So he he gets pretty horrible towards the end. At the same time that that's happening, the ex-boyfriend slowly becomes not sympathetic, but more sympathetic. Mm-hmm. When she says, I don't want to have this baby, he helps arrange yep. to get her an abortion in the middle of the night. He's, the doctor's even like, what the hell? Like, Yeah. It- he's, trying to, he's trying to defend her. He's trying to take care of her. He gets his hand melted and his foot melted by Brundlefly's vomit, vomit, which I think in that scene makes him a more sympathetic character because now he's like like the fly at the end of the movie. He's now helpless, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, He gets to do the hero act of like shooting, rescuing Gina Davis, shooting the, the cord that's connecting her. He transforms as much as Brundle transforms into something inhuman. This guy transforms into something quite human and almost sympathetic towards the end. 
I'm not sure how to deal with that. Part of me wants to say that that's just the generic demands of the character. You've got to have this kind of a character in this kind of a movie at this point in the movie. And so he becomes that character. But I also wonder if there isn't an intentional paralleling of his development with Brundle's development. The other thing I want to touch on very quickly is, is the eroticism here. We, we talked earlier about how sex and the transformation, sex and death, they're linked there. We touched on how that might be reflective of the 1980s and stuff that was going on at that time. Uh, but another thing that I think is, is key here is that it fits into a structure that works in Cronenberg's larger filmography, where bodily transformation is eroticized. There's a line in his most recent Crimes of the Future that says surgery is the new sex, mm. where these people will perform these surgeries and and like it becomes a way of you see this in Crash where people are having car crashes to uh, to get sexual highs. You see this in Videodrome and you see it in existence where people plug into these like virtual reality consoles through these little puckered fleshy ports at the base of their spine and so you 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 see a lot of images of people like rubbing these fleshy ports with their fingers and lubing them up and then sticking these <laughs> these <laughs> probes into them for cronenberg body horror has a deeply sexual connotation to it mm -hmm. in a way that I think goes beyond just saying, oh, wow, the AIDS crisis was going on at this time. And you see this here, like Brundle's actual transformation is not sexy. I, I think there are very, very few, I won't say none. There are very, very few people who will find the scene where he like squeezes his finger and the fingernail pops off and juice squirts out of it. Very few people will find that sexy, right. I think. I may be wrong, but I think very few people will find that sexy or where like she pushes his face and his jaw comes off. But at the same time, this is a very horny movie. Mm -hmm. The whole first half of the movie is basically Jeff Goldblum walking around almost naked or naked. Gina Davis walking around almost naked or naked, them making love. And all of that is preceding the actual transformation. And this is where I think that the metamorphosis is different. In the metamorphosis, there's no sex. And th oh, this is what I was getting at. This is precisely why I don't see the metamorphosis as body horror. Because for me, the body horror and the erotic are linked, just like sex and death are linked. Or if you're Leslie Fiedler, love and death are linked, right? Eros and Thanatos ride in the same carriage, this sort of thing. There's no Eros in the metamorphosis. There's no sex in the metamorphosis. And so to me, when I read about Gregor Samsa transforming, that is an excuse to talk about his mental state. Whereas when I see Brundle transforming into the Brundle fly, that's very much talking about his embodiment and his embodiment is very clearly and keenly tied to sex. Even his plan at the end, his plan at the end is to fuse his body with Gina Davis's. That's the ultimate in sex. 
right but like having your genetic code mingled (laughs) oh for sure but i think i do think that you're missing something fundamentally like with kafka and i mean it's fundamentally marxist you're right like it doesn't have anything to do with sexiness or sex or anything like that because labor Labor makes the body sexless in these situations. Gregor Samsa, you're right. He has no sexual desire besides like this vague woman in fur on his wall. But that's because his he has dedicated his body wholesale to traveling all over and trying to sell shit to support his family. I mean, I guess I don't know if this makes it body horror or not, but I think that the horror of the body in Kafka has more to do with, I feel like anyways, agency in one's own like sort of transformation into like just machinery. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there's nothing sexy about that. Right. Unless you're David Cronenberg. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, he would just have like a a fucking long shot of just like a piston, like (laughs) just just We are again um, moving into the very end of our show where we provide a couple recommendations of something we've been reading or watching or something we thought we should share. Nathaniel, uh, what do you have to recommend right now? Well, I've got I've got two things to recommend, if I may. One's a movie, one's a book. The, and, and they're both kind of connected to what we've been talking about. I just rewatched the movie The Show. Are you familiar with this? I don't think so it's from 2020 it's up on shutter i believe it's directed by mitch jenkins and it was written by alan moore Mm. and it's a a sequel of sorts to the short films that they made that were collected as showpieces which is also up on shutter i do a lot of looking around to try to find something that scratches what what I might call the, the Twin Peaks itch. I'm a big fan of Twin Peaks. I love Twin mm-hmm. Peaks. And so I'm always saying, oh, this show looks like it might be like Twin Peaks. And I'm always disappointed because most of the time they take very surface level sort of reference and then they don't actually do anything truly Twin Peaksian. The show, okay, first, it's a thoroughly Alan Moore production. So I'm not saying that they're ripping off Twin Peaks. But the show is the closest I've ever come to finding another piece of entertainment that makes me think, wow, this is Twin Peaks, only in Northampton and with a bunch of, you know, British people. It's kind of a noir. You can watch it without having watched showpieces, although showpieces makes a lot of it much more clear than it is otherwise. It follows a man who might be a detective. He might not be who's traveling 
to Northampton to try to find a person that disappeared. And he's interviewing all these quirky, kooky characters. There is a bar that does not exist that they visit at different points. Alan Moore shows up as a sort of demiurge, evil television magician. And he's great because he's Alan Moore. I mean, if you've ever seen an interview with Alan Moore, it's exactly that. Just How big is his beard? Uh, it's quite big. And it is <laughs> quite, it's quite big. It's quite big and it's waxed. It's waxed. Oh shit. Okay. So you know, he's got his hair waxed up and his beard waxed up. So he looks like a crescent moon. Oh my oh, god. This Alan is more. It is so it is so good. I love this this movie so much. So that's that's my first recommendation. My second recommendation I'm bringing up partly to piggyback off of that, but partly because I started reading it about the time I started preparing for this podcast. And this author mentions Kafka several times. So the book is a brand new book called Ominous Whoosh, A Wandering Mind Returns to Twin Peaks by John Thorne. Whoosh. Whoosh. Yeah. And it just came out. It's 2022. And it's basically an episode guide and analysis of the third season of Twin Peaks, Twin Peaks, The Return. And he talks about Kafka and the way that Kafka influences David Lynch's aesthetic. He talks about who Judy is. We're not going to talk about Judy, but he talks about Judy. And yeah, it's it's just a really good sort of quick analysis of Twin Peaks The Return without doing the whole boring, banal, four-hour-long, did you know Twin Peaks is really about television thing that some YouTubers do. So that's my second recommendation. Ominous Whoosh, really worth checking out. And whoosh. the show, really worth checking out. Whoosh. whoosh. Well, what does an ominous whoosh sound like? kind of like that kind of like that yeah Yeah. okay i have two things as well first just because i want to i know you're watching it too the house of the dragons the dragon house that's what i call it i'm like elizabeth you want to watch dragon house (laughs) maybe it sounds like a pbs kids show right or it makes it sound like more like a like reality show like hey let's watch dragon house But like that's what I call it. I've been really liking this show. I did not think I would. I we talked about this before, but I went into this. I I feel like actively hostile. I mm-hmm. hated the end of Game of Thrones so much. It made me so fucking mad. The Dragon House, real skeptical, like real skeptical, if not outright. Like I think this is going to be terrible. But I have been digging it. It, it reminds me of early Game of Thrones. It, it like reminds me of like, oh my gosh, that's why I love that show so much. Because it is all about the political intrigue. And like, yeah, it has the dragons. It has some of like the violence, I guess. But it, it, it's, it definitely seems more centered on like the sort of court political intrigue. I, I, I've been really enjoying it. So that's one of my recommendations. What, yeah, like yeah, you've been watching yeah, it I- too. I went in very, very skeptical. I got bored. Like, I didn't hate the last season of Game of Thrones, but I got very bored with it about halfway through and just quit watching. I've I've heard some of the broad outlines of what happens in the end, and 
it's the kind of ending that theoretically works, but apparently didn't work in execution. <laughs> so that's that's my attitude towards that. House of the Dragon is leaning into the soap opera shit from Game of Thrones, which yes. is what I always really liked. It's right. like, oh, no, I saw you leaving this house of ill repute last night. What will happen to your reputation now? Oh, All of that man. sort of thing. Very yeah, soapy. We just, we just very... watched that episode today. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I'm I'm digging that. I like that. I hope that they keep with that and they don't give into the temptation to do what later Game of Thrones did, which is every season have the biggest battle ever on television, which is boring. Battles right. are boring. So I'm hoping that they stick with the stick with the soap opera and stay away from epic battles and I'll be happy. I didn't even think I was going to watch it. I was like, I'll watch the first episode and I'll see if mm. I care. And they probably knew that there were a million people like me. Mm. So, but it's, I, I've been, I've been enjoying it. The other recommendation I have is this is the first time I've read this in a number of years, but Voltaire's Candide. Okay. I love this little book. Have you ever read it? I have not read it. No. My gosh. So the subtitle, it's Candide, subtitle or optimism. Um, and it takes on like Nietzschean optimism. Uh, Wilhelm Gottfried Leipzig, I think is his name. But he has this idea of optimism, which basically is we live in the best of all possible worlds. It's not like, oh, glass half full kind of guy. It's like, no. If there is a perfect God, God created the perfect universe and God created a perfect planet and the perfect thing. So we live in the best of all possible worlds. And Voltaire's Candide is basically this really long picaresque adventure novel where the main character Candide like travels literally all over the world, South America. He goes to a utopia in South America and all over the place, but realizes like that idea is bullshit. And the, the, the famous last line of it is because Pangloss, the voice mm -hmm. of optimism is like, Oh, we live in the best of all possible worlds. And Candide says, no, don't you understand? Like we must cultivate our garden mm -hmm. and it's, you know, we can't be passive to the world. But anyways, I hadn't read this book in quite a long time and I'm re I, I'm rereading it again and it's really good. And I really recommend it. It's, it's a really fast, like folks could read it in the afternoon. It's a really short book. It's good. Highly recommended. Voltaire Candide. All right. Well, thank you everyone for joining us. Yeah. Uh, thanks everyone. I don't know what is going to be next. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. We're going to have a, a good one, whatever it is. All right. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye. for joining us at the Projectionist Lending Library. Uh, if you'd like to contact us, you can find us on Twitter at PLLibPodcast. 
You can find us on Instagram at PLL Podcast. You can find our Facebook page at the Projectionist Learning Library. And finally, you can email us at projectionistslendinglibrary at gmail.com. Feel free to reach out if you have any feedback, if there's any particular book or adaptation you'd love to have us cover or anything at all. We look forward to hearing from you, and we hope to catch you next time.